Good morning, everybody. I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Haggai if you've got your Bibles. I'm trying to make sure my collar's fixed because Jay normally does that for me, but he's sitting out there so he can't come up here and fix my collar. And he'll, it'll bother him the whole service. He won't pay attention to a word I say if I don't fix this. So and he's laughing because he knows it's true. So there, I fixed it. And uh, before I got up here, my wife actually said, she goes, um, are you wearing that t-shirt for the whole service? And I said, well, it's our logo. And, and I said, no, I've got another shirt to put on. She was like, good, love you. And so that was what I was putting the shirt on, just so you know. Um, anyway, we're in the book of Haggai. And we've been talking about over the last several weeks uh, that this book is one of the positive, really positive books of the Old Testament. It's only two chapters long. You can read it really quickly. Um, but it's one of the prophets that the people responded to. In the Old Testament, most of the prophets that prophesied and told God's people, warned them, said that they needed to love God, they needed to leave their sin, they needed to obey God and what he wanted to do. The people ignored God, and it led to dire consequences for them and future generations. Haggai, the people actually repent, and they obey God. And so you got to pick up where the story, remember where the story is. These people have been completely defeated because of their stupidity. They were 70 years enslaved and in misery. They've been given multiple second chances and squandered it. God has commanded his people to build in the midst of difficult circumstances, and now they have to decide, will they build his way or will they build their way? What they want or what God says he wants. And will they lead others to rebuild God's way, which doesn't make any sense often, or will they rebuild what he wants. And through Haggai, God tells his surrendered people, I am with you. I will help you. It's time to rebuild. It's time to rebuild on my foundation, not on the stuff you've been building your lives on. And so that's where we find ourselves. It's it's a story that continues to repeat itself throughout the scriptures. And at this time, if you remember, in Haggai 1, it says, in the second year of King Darius... On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, kind of son of Shilatel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Zodak, Zo, <laughs> Josedak, the high priest. The Lord of hosts says this. Remember, Lord of hosts means Lord of armies. These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is time for you yourselves to live. Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of hosts says this, think carefully about your ways. And in the first week, we talked about that, that God looked at his people and said, think carefully about what you're doing. Because see, we don't like to think carefully. We actually typically get offended when people look at us and say, I don't think you're thinking carefully about this. We look for ways to justify it. We look for ways to 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 find a way to dismiss when people look at us and say, look, I'm, I'm asking you to think about your ways and where this goes and where it leads and what you're doing and what future generations are looking at your life and seeing. I mean, we're seeing politics right now where no one wants to deal with that. Neither side of the aisle. You try to point out something they do wrong that we need to think of and think of our ways and no, I'm right, no, I'm right, no, I'm right. And it's just a war. And God says, I need you to think carefully about your ways. Are your ways your ways or are they my ways, is what he says. And then he goes on to say, you expected much, but then it amounted to little. In other words, we have all these expectations of what we think God should do. All these expectations of the way life should work and we should be happy. And here's all the things that I think, and then it amounts to little. And then instead of coming to God and repenting and saying, okay, I'm done with my way, I want your way, we just double down on our way. We just try more of our way. And it goes on, it says, when you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it, says God. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. And we talked about the fact that when we think carefully about his ways, God's ways is that he has built a new house. We're not supposed to build a temple anymore. We don't even have a building. We're getting ready to sell the property we own. (laughs) Why? Aren't we supposed to build stuff? It's not wrong to build stuff, but God moved the temple from a physical place where the Holy Spirit resided in the Holy of Holies, that when Christ died, he broke through everything, and through his death and resurrection, now the Holy Spirit is in the hearts of humans. This is the new temple, and when we connect with one another, we are stones being built into God's house, the church. The church is not a building. It's not a denomination. The church is is a family built stone by stone. 
Submitting to one another, submitting to our place in how God wants us to build. You cannot be a Christian and not be a part of God building you in a church. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, yeah, Christians can maybe take a break from church and try to figure some things out. But if you're okay with, well, me and God can be in the woods the rest of my life, I question whether you've ever read your Bible or you know the God of Scripture. Because he calls us to be together, to hold one another accountable. So we have to think carefully. Then we looked at the fact that in Haggai 2, it says, doesn't it seem like nothing to you? They start to rebuild the temple. They get it to a point of being rebuilt, and they look at it, and they go, it's nothing compared to what it used to be. And they were discouraged. They looked and said, I thought I had all these expectations of the way things were going to turn out. We were going to build a temple like Solomon's. And they get done, they're like, ew, it's not very pretty. It's kind of ugly. That's what happens in our lives, right? What happens in our lives is sometimes it seems like nothing. It doesn't seem like God's doing And so at that moment, we have a choice to make. Do we go out and try to build what we want, abandon God and say, forget it? Or do we look at what he's trying to do and say, he can do anything with the worst thing. So I'm going to trust him in the midst of what he says, not in how I feel or what I see. That's exactly where God's people were at this moment. And then in verse 5, it says, this is the promise I made to you when You came out of Egypt. In other words, when I delivered you from slavery. We just read in Romans 6 where we've been delivered from the slavery of sin in our lives through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And he says, and my spirit is present among you, so don't be afraid. Why are you afraid to build the right thing? Why are you afraid to have honest conversations? Why are you afraid to to really trust God versus saying, well, God can have these parts of my life, but this part's mine. What are you building then? Because my guess is that you're building this over here and telling God he needs to be okay with it instead of asking God what he wants. Now, here's the key. The logical progression of all of this is really important to understand. The logical progression is that if you think about your ways and you begin to look around and, man, it seems like nothing, then you have a choice to make. And the way to make that choice is that you need to reflect back and need to ask yourself, Did I turn to God or did I turn to something else to build my life? You know, I was talking to B about baptism this past week. And one of the things I'm reminded of is that when I reflect back over my life, I was baptized three times. Three different times. As an infant, at confirmation at the age of 12, and again at 15 when I went forward in a church. Three times. And I never turned my heart to God. Never. I walked the aisle. I wanted to turn my heart to God. I wanted to be a better person. I wanted God to fix my relationships with my girlfriends and fix my relationships around me. I wanted him to help me be a great person and do great things in my life. But I never walked forward and said, I surrender. My life is done. It's yours. I'm out. Three times. Then I got baptized once after I came to know Christ, two and a half years later after I came to know Christ, because I'm like, I don't want to do another religious thing. And as I was reading the scriptures, that passage we read in Matthew that I read in this, I looked at it and go, why am I disobeying God? Why wouldn't I want to build what he builds? And he says to be baptized, so why am I not doing it? So literally, I walked out, many of you have heard this story, I literally walked out of the bedroom I was in, walked out to the kitchen table, there was a pastor we were visiting in North Carolina, who was a friend of mine who was there, and I said, I need to be baptized now. (laughs) He said, okay, took me to a pool, got some people together, baptized me. (laughs) Like, three times I was baptized and no heart turned. One time, because my heart had so been turned to God, when I read the scriptures, I went, I want to do what Jesus did. I want to obey him. Why am I not obeying him? I want to do that now. Who can help me do it? I'm going to go help, ask him to help me. See the difference? See, when God says reflect back to his people, In verse 9, he says, the final glory of this house will be greater than the first. God wants to do something great in our lives for his glory. And then he says, I will provide peace in this place, peace in our heart when we choose to follow him. In Haggai 2, 15, this is what it says. Now reflect back from this day. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? Oh, sorry about that. What state were you in? What state were you in? 
See, most of us and most of the modern church tries to tell people, oh, God loves you, you're a wonderful person, and you can have a better life, and the life you want can get better if you just trust Jesus. That is not the gospel message of the Bible. I I hope you know that. It's not the gospel message. God loves us. He desires for us to know him. He desires for us to see that we were created for his glory. He desires all of that. But we just did baptism as a symbol of what? Death. I am dying to myself and what I want to build, and I'm coming out of the water saying, God, what do you want me to build? Like, it's not adding Jesus to your life. It's literally saying, I have no life apart from you, so you are my life. Now tell me how you want me to live my life. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to study it. I'm going to get around people who help me because I literally believe this. And I think today, everybody talks about that the church is going backwards and people are leaving the church. I don't think people are leaving the church. I just think the church is being purified. I think the true followers of Christ are stepping up and the ones that have been sitting like I was three times baptized thinking I was a Christian that doesn't work out for me so I leave it and then I come back to it and I leave it and I come back to it and I leave it and I come back to it waiting for God to give me what I want. I think those people are disappearing from the church because it's just too costly to believe the things that God says. It's just too costly. And we're starting to understand it like the rest of the world always has. You know, I was talking, again, to be about baptism, and I told her, I said, you know, it's sad to me that we even have to have a membership class in our church. I wish baptism was what it meant to the most of the rest of the world. I wish baptism, because if you're baptized in a Muslim country, you're dead. Dead. If they find out you're baptized, they kill you. They either behead you or stone you publicly. Period. There's no questions asked. You're done. You don't just go get baptized because you want a better life. You understand that if I get baptized and anybody finds out, I have no life. And that is the way it is in most countries overseas that aren't Christian. India, China, many countries in Africa that are Muslim, the Middle East, Indonesia, those places, if you are baptized, you are saying, I'm a dead man. But in our country, you can be baptized like I was four times, and it means nothing. You see, Haggai is saying, and he's looking, and he's, he's looking, and he's saying, now reflect back from this day. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? In other words, who do you believe you are? When I came finally to faith in Jesus, I was done. I was giving up. I was like, God, I don't want to live anymore, but I don't want to die and hurt the people around me by taking my own life. So I'm surrendering to you. See, that, that's the picture that we, we get stuck and we understand what this means. And then he says, he goes on to say in verse 17, I struck you all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. In other words, God tried everything he could do to bless us and to love us. And you know what our response was to it? You don't give me enough. That was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The original sin was God's holding out on me. He doesn't give me enough. He doesn't give me what I want. I'm done. It's original sin. And we just keep perpetuating that. And we actually teach other generations behind us that message. Not necessarily by what we say, but by our responses and relationships. That, honey, you got to look out for number one. you got to do what's right for you. You don't lay your life down for anybody unless they lay it down for you. What if God had that perspective? What if that was the message of the gospel? Well, none of you want to follow me, and we'll see that in a minute. So, you're all dead. I don't care about any of you. Perish forever. But he says, listen to me. This is my declaration. I want you to turn to me and quit turning to everything else. So we pick back up. Haggai 10, reflect back. Can I just tell you that our biggest problem is we don't reflect back far enough. When God says reflect back, he tells them to reflect back to when in that that passage? To Egypt. That was like thousands of years earlier. Like when we reflect back, here's what we do. We reflect back over our piddly little life. I've been alive 45 years, going on 46. I know I'm old. Okay, so I've been alive like 45 years. 
Do you understand how 45 years matches in the line of eternity? Like, it's not even a dot. You could take a pen, draw a line, and go, doop, and that's 45 years. But when I want to reflect back, and I'm asking God questions I'm doing most of the time, I'm only reflecting back till I was about five and started having memories. And I'm telling God, over the last 40 years, God, here's what you should have done. Here's what you could do. Here's what I want you to do. Here's... I don't reflect all the way back to what he's done throughout history to be faithful, and I don't reflect forward to what he said he will do. No, I just live in my own little world. Exactly what God's people were doing here, and Haggai was trying to tell them, this is bigger than you. It's bigger about your little life right now. God's trying to do something to make himself known to the world around you. Will you trust him? In verse 10, it says this, on the 24th day of the ninth month, This would have been around Hanukkah, the festival of lights. It's when they would have celebrated the fact that the oil didn't run out in the temple and that the lights in the temple stayed on, which signified God's presence with them, that the lights didn't go out. And so Haggai's prophesying on a major holiday. He's going to them and he's saying, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. This is what the Lord of hosts, that's Lord of armies, says, ask the priests for a ruling. So he says, God says, hey, Haggai, I want you to do this. I want you to go to the priests. I want you to go to the leaders, and I want you to ask them a question. I want you to ask them to rule on an issue. The reason we have the Bible is because it's God's ruling to us. The New Testament is God's rulings to the church. That's what it is. God says, this is what I want the church to do. Here's what it should look like. And we don't like God's ruling. We make up our own rules, right? I don't like that rule. I'm going to make up my own rule. And so Haggai goes to the priest and says, okay, do you like God's rules or do you like yours? And here's what he says. This is what the Lord says. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, I love that, right? Some of you think, consecrated meat? Like, I get this because I love beef jerky, okay? And you might run into me sometime and I am carrying meat in the fold of my garment. That's the inside pocket of my coat, okay? It's expensive, so I don't get it very often, but when I get it, I savor it. Like, it is so good. And, and it's the same with um, espresso, chocolate-covered espresso beans. I got some of those for Christmas, and I've been eating three, three of those a day. Three or four of, when I want to stretch it, I get four a day since Christmas when I got them. I come home in the afternoon, and I get three espresso beans out, and I'm like, mmm. Those are so good, right? Like I savor it. So you look at this and you say, what are they doing carrying around consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, right? Number one, they weren't supposed to carry around consecrated meat. It'd probably be weird if you're in the store and being like, I'm pulling out beef jerky and being like, people be like, what is he doing? Same thing here. You shouldn't be carrying around consecrated meat necessarily in the fold of your garment. Why are you hiding it? Whatever else. And it says, and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food Does it become holy? In other words, does that consecrated piece of meat make the other food holy when it touches it? And the priest's answer, no. Many people wear a cross. Many celebrities wear a cross. And to them, it's like a symbol of like, God is with me. We carry around all kinds of superstitions or, or things that we do that, well, well, if this works out this way, if I've got consecrated meat in my pocket, well, then God's with me. And then anything I do, God blesses. Lucky rabbit's foot. Knock on wood. We've got all these things that, that literally mean nothing. This consecrated meat doesn't mean anything. What makes it consecrated and holy is not the meat. It's God himself. God is the one that will make the bread, the stew, the wine, the oil, or any other food he wants holy, holy. Not the consecrated meat we rub on something else. That's not the way God works. And yet that's how we expect God to work. God, I've been rubbing myself all over the place for your glory, and just things aren't changing. Did I say that you walking around touching people was going to make them holy? No. The whole idea of holy water. Like, I'm going to throw water on you, and now you're like, oh, there you go. Like, what? That water's no more holy than the way you get out of the tap. It might be a little better if you purify it. But anyway, like, 
So he's looking and he's asking a question because these people believed in all kinds of weird superstitions. And so he's testing them to say, will you truly just trust me? Or are you going to fall back on all your little superstitions and things you do to make you feel like I'm with you? Or will you truly be holy before me? Will you, truly, will you trust me and stop trusting me, stop trusting this, that, or the other thing, but truly trust in who I am? He goes on and says, then Haggai asked, if someone, is def- if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these things, do they become or does it become defiled? The priest answered, yes, it becomes defiled. In the Old Testament, they had laws about touching dead bodies. It's one of the reasons why the Jews during the plagues of the last two centuries didn't get the plague and die from the plague as much as the Greeks and Europeans did. The Greeks and Europeans' response to the Jews not dying from the plague was not to ask them, how do you keep from getting the plague? It was to persecute them and kill them because, well, you're giving us hexes and you're putting spells on us and you guys are doing stuff and giving us the plague. And they did that multiple times in history. If you look back, if you reflect back far enough, you see where they had the answer to how to stop plague and the people around them didn't give a rip what God had to say about not touching blood about how to handle dead bodies, how to separate yourself from the camp, how to be declared clean by a priest before you can re-engage the people. That's all in the Old Testament, folks. Did you know that or have you just never read it? You can't reflect back on something you don't even know. God's laws are good. He told them that thousands of years ago when they didn't have germ theory. They didn't know where there were these microbes and stuff that kill people. And yet he said, just trust me. I haven't revealed to you germ theory yet. You don't have microscopes. It'll come someday. But will you just trust me that I know what I'm doing? No. That's weird. I should be able to lay down with my dead husband in the bed and cuddle him all night and then go back out into the community if that's what I choose to do. No, you can't. You don't understand that if that disease is with him, now it's with you and now you're spreading it. Like That's what Haggai's asking. Will you follow these crazy rules that make no sense because you don't understand germ theory? And he looks and he says, yes, if you touch something, if you touch something dead and then you touch food, don't eat that food. Don't do it. I mean, we're running around with hand sanitizer in every corner right now and at the same time saying, oh, God's not real. He does, I can't believe in a God. I can't. You realize nobody in the world was practicing this. Most of the rest of the world would like take the blood of the person and wipe it on themselves. They would take their innards and have a worship service for the dead person. Like, if you reflect back, you can see that all the time God is saying, will you turn to my ways? Will you listen to my ways? I know they may not make sense to you right now, but will you trust me that long term they will? And now we actually have the information and we don't even read the Old Testament. We don't even believe what God said before. We don't even look at it and go, wow, that's smart. Because we've already decided, I'm not turning to God. I'll turn to everything else. And that's exactly what Haggai is looking at the people. Oh, and by the way, we can't do anything to make people holy, but we can do a lot to defile them. You can't do anything to make someone else holy. Only God can change the human heart. Only God can bring holiness. All you can do is defile them. And the reason you want to walk with God is not so that you can be more holy or so that they can be more holy. You want to walk with God because you recognize he's already made you holy in Christ and you don't want to defile that relationship. And I don't want anybody else to to see the defilement. Like this is such a beautiful thing that Haggai is doing and the people respond honestly. Then Haggai replied, so is this people and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. In other words, you people keep going around defiling everything. You keep trying to build a temple and then you go, oh, it's nothing. Everything you do is focused on trying to make a utopia, make something holy for you instead of saying, God, it's all about you. You're the only one that's holy. We trust you. We believe you're going to come back and reestablish and destroy the defilement. We're trusting you. That's the message. And then he goes on, he says, and so is every work of their hands. Whatever they offer there is defiled. So let me get this straight. 
You've given us the sacrificial system with all of its rules in the Old Testament. You've done all these laws, and you're telling us that even if we try to do all those, we're still defiled? Yep. Because if you're trusting in those things to make you holy, you can never be holy. But if you're trusting in me to make you holy, and you believe that I can forgive you, I will save you, I can make you who you could never think you could be, and now you're doing those things because you're grateful for that, you got it. See, no other religion in the world presents this. Every other religion, every other system of belief in the world says, you do these things and you can measure how holy you are. You You can get to a certain level. You're better than the next guy. God says, no, you can do everything perfectly and still be defiled and still be cursed to hell. And then we look and go, well, that's just not fair. I can't believe in a God that would do that. Why? Because our God puts everybody on an equal playing field. You're no better than me. I'm no better than you. The question is, do we know the best God? See, that's the beauty of this. And he says you didn't turn. See, the default of our world is it's already dead and defiled. Can I just tell you you're going to die? You're already dead. There's no way you get out alive. I watched uh, briefly this weekend the movie 2012. Remember in 2012 when like there was some prediction the world was going to end on 2012? By the way, it's 2021. It didn't happen. But so the 2012 movie came out and I'm kind of watching that while I'm doing some other stuff and like, you know, thinking about that's 2012 and laughing like, yeah, that was nine years ago. We're still here. Like, but, but we're still going to die and something's going to get us. <laughs> and so I'm watching all this devastation and destruction happen and I'm like, oh, yeah. And then they build some arcs, right? Like to get out. I'm like, oh, yeah, that story's, that's a good story to steal from the Bible. Like, it's just amazing to me when I read this and here God is saying very simply, the default is that you and I are born dead. The second we're born, it's like every parent's afraid their child's dying. Wait till you have a kid someday. When you have that first child, and it's like laying in the bassinet, like you wake up multiple times like, are they breathing? And you look, you see if the little blankie moves, right? Now some people don't because they're so exhausted because you just had a baby. You're like, you look to see if they're breathing. You look to see if they're alive. I don't care, I just need to sleep. So that can happen too. Right? But, but there's this fear of like they're going to get into things. Then we put like little hooks on all the cabinets because we don't want them to get into the poisonous stuff. And, you know, we're all concerned. By kid three, you're like, where are they? I don't know. Go check on your brother. <laughs> like, the re- this is the reality of our world. And we think the default is we're all living. No, we're all dying. The question is, is there a way to live? Is there a way out of this mess? That's what God is telling his people. Verse 4, it says, from ancient time, or in Isaiah 64, this is what, how Isaiah said it. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. See, we want it now. We want our happiness now. We want God to work now. He says, no, wait. And then he says, you welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. They remember you in your ways. You see, here's the thing. It's not just joy about being happy regardless of what's right. And it's not about being right without finding happiness. It's both. It's finding happiness in the rightness of God, in the person of God, in who he is. And when I find my rightness in him, then he orders the rest of the relationships. But if I haven't found my rightness in that, I'm going to find all the other things to try to make me happy. I'm not going to wait for him. I'm doing it now. I'll have what I want now. Thank you very much. And then in verse, he goes on. He says, but we have sinned. In other words, when he says they joyfully do what is right and they remember you in your ways, look at the response of the people. It, they don't, the righteous don't look and go, well, yeah, I'm joyful and I'm righteous. No, they realize, wait, I'm not joyful. Oh, but we have sinned and you are angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? All of us have become like something unclean and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away in the wind. No one calls on your name striving to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and made us melt because of our iniquity. Yet, Lord, yet you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all, or we all, are the work of your hands. That is such a beautiful picture. 
when Isaiah wrote this, the people of Israel were actually doing pretty well. They had, their stock market, so to speak, was doing really well. Like, like things weren't going badly when Isaiah wrote this. He was saying it's going to go badly. And they were like, no, it's going fine. And he's like, no, 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 this is how it's going to go down. Here's how Paul said it in Romans 3. What then? Are we any better? In other words, are we any better than anybody else? Not at all, for we have previously charged that both Jew and Gentile are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Instead of turning to, we turn away. All alike have become useless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongue. Viper's venom is under their lips." Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace, they don't know how to have. They can't get to it. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. In other words, you read the Bible like Haggai brought those three questions and they answered, well, yeah, that that would be sinful. That's the right thing. Then he goes on in Romans and says this, but now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, that is, God's rightness, his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus' name means? Yahweh saves who is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. That's what his name means. Then it says, to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So you're justified not by your works, but by grace. It's a free gift that you accept and then you respond to that free gift. Just like I come home every day and the free gift of espresso beans in my cabinet, I'm responding to when I get home that day. It's like grace is awaiting me in my cabinet. I mean, it's beautiful. And I still have quite a few left. I'm really happy about that. Like, We should be feeding like that on God's grace. And he goes on in Ephesians, Paul says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were dead men. In which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclination of our flesh and our thoughts And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also, but God. You see, when we present a gospel that says God just wants to make you a better you, we ignore things like this passage and like Isaiah and like Romans and the rest of the Bible that says we are in trouble if God does not save us. There is no way to save ourselves. And you should find hope in that because it also means that no one can measure you up to whether you're saved or not except to say, do you know Christ? And if you do know him, then we ask, why aren't you following him? Because if you know him, then you would gratefully do these things. Why are you struggling in your gratitude? Why are you struggling in your joy? Why are you struggling in your obedience? Have you truly turned to him? Have you you thought and reflected back about your decision and turned to him? Or do you keep turning to other things? Why do you do that? It doesn't mean you're not saved, but it could mean you're not. Just because the the fourth time I got baptized and accepted Christ, I didn't stop struggling with sin anymore. I I didn't become sinless and like, oh, there. I committed my life to Christ finally, so now I'm perfect. All of you, watch me, obey me. Like, no, no. God says, now I've saved you. Now we're going to take the work of going into all the parts and cleaning everything out. (laughs) And that's a lifelong process. And God says, don't worry if you stumble. Don't worry if you sin. I'll pick you back up. You just have to reflect back and then turn to me. Ephesians goes on to say, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. And then he says, you are saved by grace 
together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. No one can boast. And then he goes on, he says, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. In other words, God says it's by grace you're saved and then the reason you do works is because you keep coming back to God for his grace. You keep reflecting back that it's not my works, it's what God did for me. And so I owe him my life and if I owe someone my life, then I respond to whatever they ask me to do. Because I owe them my life. And they gave their life for me, which means they love me and they care about me when everybody else is just trying to use my life temporarily so they can be happy, so that they can get what they want. This guy tried to die for me. I didn't ask him to die for me, but he did. So what's my response to that? Do I look at him and say, you didn't need to die for me. I don't know why you died. I'm a good person. Get out of my life. Or do we recognize these truths that that are working out in this passage? Do we reflect back over the reality of our world? You know, we hear a word that's used all the time today, and the word is unprecedented. Every time I hear that word on the news or in the newspapers, I just want to vomit. Like every time. I'm like, like it just comes up a little bit. It's not unprecedented. If you reflect back over human history, we are not dealing with anything that humans haven't dealt with before. I hope you know that. There's nothing new under the sun, the Bible said. We've had pandemics before. We've, like, all of it, it's not new. The question is, will we reflect back and recognize that and then ask real questions or will we just come up with solutions we think that'll fix it that won't? Look, this pandemic might not get you, but something else might. Something else will. Old age, Murder, <laughs> car wreck, I don't know what it'll be. Some of you laugh at murder because you've thought, well, I don't know that I'm going to die, but I've thought about some people I want to get rid of. No, I'm just kidding. Like, something's, like, so do we just throw our hands up and go, well, yeah, but I just believe in, like, dust and, you know, stuff. And so there's really no point in life other than to try to enjoy it and be happy and just get through it. Really? And my heart breaks for you if that's your mentality. Because there's a loving God who created us for a relationship that we've rejected that's waiting for us to come back to him. That's like a child that you bore that child and that child says, I hate you, I want nothing to do with you, and leaves you. And like the story of the prodigal son, the father's looking every day for the child to come back. That's our heavenly father. That's Haggai with these people. Verse 15, he goes on, he says, Now reflect back from this day. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? Let me ask you, what state are you in right now? Maybe nobody else knows what state you're in. God does. God knows what state you're in. Can I just tell you, he, he may have put you there on purpose to try to get your attention, which is what he did here. Because I don't know any other way to get your attention because you don't listen when things are going well. When I make things bad, sometimes people listen. Because when things are going well, you think you're doing everything right. When all your feelings and emotions are lining up, you think that that means everything's right. Not necessarily. You see, we have an enemy that is just fine to keep us happy so he can kill us later. And that's the story of humanity. Rulers that just keep people happy and use them, and then they kill them later. God says, I don't want you to die. That's the reality of our world. I want you to live. And I want you to reflect back on what I've done and what I've been doing and what I told you. And then he goes on. He says, when someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When someone came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I've done everything. I have blessed you. I've given you life. I've taken it away. I've made your life miserable in certain areas. I, I've done everything I can, and you keep turning to everything else. I don't know what else to do. 
And God's saying, I want you to build on my foundation. You see, did you, when you reflect back, did you reflect back and I turned to God because I really believed he is who he says he is? And I really wanted him to work in my life and change me. I believed that there was no hope without him. Or did you grab God like a consecrated piece of meat and shove him in your pocket and then close the pocket off and go about life pretending like everything's fine? That was me the first three times. It only took once to really commit my life to Christ. He goes on and he says this, Consider carefully from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider it carefully. Consider the foundation. Consider the cornerstone. That's Christ. Consider that foundation you're building on, he says. Consider it carefully. And he goes on and he says, Is there still seed in the granary, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced? But from this day on, I will bless you. He said, you think that you have a good life? You think that things have been produced? You think, well, we can make it? He's like, you don't even understand how much I want to do. You don't even understand how much I want to show you the blessings of heaven. Now, does that mean we're going to have lots of vine and lots of figs and lots of pomegranates? Not necessarily, because here's what Jesus said about blessing. When Jesus preached his first official sermon, here's what he said. When he saw the crowds, in other words, Haggai, seeing the crowds of people that had come back to Jerusalem, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them. You know, it's interesting that Jesus sits down to teach, and all the preachers in our world stand up to preach. I'm sitting right now. I kind of do both, but I'm just confused. No, I mean, like, it's interesting. He sits down to be intimate with the people. And here's what he teaches. Then he began to teach them, saying, the poor in spirit are blessed. Poor in spirit are happy. No, they're not. They're miserable because they're poor in spirit. No, no, no. Those that understand that they don't have what it takes and they need a Holy Spirit, they're the ones that find blessing. Those that realize they have nothing without God. Then he goes on and he says, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed. Okay, this is just getting weirder. That's a blessing? Yeah. Because when you mourn, you understand that there's something more you need. That's why he says, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, or the other translation is the meek, those that that are careful with the power that they have. That's what that really means there. For they will inherit the earth. Those who who hunger and thirst for what's right are blessed. For God will show them what's right. He'll fill them up. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. By the way, peacemaker doesn't always mean that you don't fight. Sometimes the only way to have peace is in a fight. Jesus is going to come back to make peace, and guess what? He doesn't come back and like do like good vibes. He comes back with a sword. He goes on, he says, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. How is that good when I'm persecuted for doing the right thing, when I'm being treated like dirt for doing the right thing, for trying to do the right thing? Because you're pushing back against the whole world that doesn't want that. That's why. Then he says, you are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Notice he says because of me. If you're being persecuted and they're defaming you because you're a jerk, that's on you. (laughs) But if you're trying to do what Christ says and love people the way Christ wants them to be loved and you're confessing your sin to people when you hurt them and repent, if you're doing that, Jesus says, take confidence in me. And then he says, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great next week. By the end of your life, in your bank account. No, your reward is great in heaven. Here, people just steal rewards. In heaven, they can never be stolen. And then he says, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Haggai was one of the few prophets that was not persecuted. 
The rest of the prophets, almost to a T, were all murdered by their own people for speaking the truth, for telling the people what was right. But for some reason, they listened to Haggai's message. Then Jesus goes on and says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. Some people want to put that light out when they're trying to hide stuff. In the same way you... Let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus said, I don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill, to make everything right. You see, he says, if you'll reflect back on this, if you'll reflect back and really look at who God is and what he's done through history and the truth of the Bible, the truth of history, not listen to all the lies out there, but really dig in and ask questions and go after who God is, he says, if you turn to me, I'll turn to you. I'll be with you. But see, what we want is we want God to fix a bunch of stuff and prove himself, and then we'll say, okay, now we'll turn to you. And God's saying, hold on, I've done enough. Reflect it back. The fact that you're even alive is a miracle. I don't know about you, but I can count the number of times I should be dead in my life. Car accidents, sicknesses, like guns that went off. <laughs> a lot of times I should be dead. Hanging on a ladder with one foot, trying to reach something, and God just took my, the tip of my finger off. He didn't take my whole life. That was kind of him. goes on and he says, Haggai, is there still seed left in the granary? The wine, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced. But from this day on, I'll bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. And he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. He says, look, I want you to reflect back I want you to turn to me and I want you to understand that even though things might be going really well, they're building the temple, seems like things are moving in the right direction. He says, I'm gonna come shake things up because whenever things start going really well, you get really comfortable and you forget me every time. We do. We don't engage. And God says, I'm still engaging with you, but you've distanced yourself from me. And so every once in a while, I gotta come into your life and shake things up. And he shakes things up to see what falls out. And hopefully, our sin will fall out. We'll confess that, and he'll fill us up. Because that's exactly what he's going to do in his temple. When they build this temple, he's going to fill it with his presence. Let me ask you. Reflect back. Not just over your life. Over history. Over the scriptures. Reflect back. And ask this question. Have you really turned to God? If you have, man, celebrate that. Man, just take a moment and just like sit in awe of that for a moment. I have turned to him and he turned to me. The God of the universe, that's crazy. That's awesome. If you haven't, can I just tell you, I was miserable until I did. And I tried every religious thing. I tried all the religious stuff and it left me empty. But when I finally said I'm done and I turned to him, oh, He began to build something, and to this day, now that I reflect back, when I was 19 years old and committed my life to Christ, I reflect back over that, and I see changed lives. I see things God has done. I see stones that he has placed, and I just stand in awe. I'm not worthy of any of that. And it makes me want to turn to him more to see what more he can do in the lives of people and in my life. See, that's the beauty of our message. That's the beauty of the message that Haggai gave to the people of his day, and it's the same message for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moment. Lord, thank you for me just following you in obedience to baptism, to declare that she is turning to you. Lord, I pray that today would be a day she could reflect back on as a moment of joy and celebration of when she publicly declared what was already going on in her heart, 
that she was yours. Lord, help us to to disciple her well. Help us to to help her grow. And, And Lord, I pray for those in this room who maybe haven't made a decision to turn their life over to you like she has and like I have. Father, I pray that they would turn to you even in this moment. You say that you desire that none would perish but all would come to repentance and repentance just means turning to you. Lord, would they turn to you? Would they trust that you died for them so they don't have to, that you will give them eternal life with you because you love them and you want to be with them? There's no greater relationship. And when they go out of this place and abandon the things that they've turned to and finally turn to you. And Lord, for those of us who call ourselves your followers like I did for many years, I pray that we would check our heart to make sure that that's true. And if we find sin in our lives, it doesn't mean that we don't know you. It just means we need to turn to you. And I pray we do that. Knowing that you don't look at us with judgment and anger and frustration. You look at us like the story of the prodigal son, a father that that runs out to embrace his son or daughter to say, I've been waiting for you. Lord, I thank you that this is the message of our book. And I thank you that you are a just God. And someday you are going to bring your judgment, but it's not yet. Thank you for your patience with us, even though we're defiled. Thank you for your patience with us, even though we don't deserve anything. Thank you that you've withheld your wrath so that we could be your salt and light and experience the true blessings that you offer. We look forward to the day when we'll be with you forever. Pray all this in your name.